Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.22 that God the Father put all things under his feet. And again, that expression, all things, that means all created things. Everything is created. And here the Lord tells or Paul tells us that the Father has put all things under, under his feet and gave him to the church as head over all things. So there's no question that he has authority to make good on anything he says. The Lord introduces himself to Philadelphia in this way to strengthen and encourage them. And I think also as well as us, he intends for us to be encouraged in that. He wants us to lift up our drooping hands. He wants us to strengthen the weak knees, to lift up our hanging head and fix our eyes on our commander and our Lord. Because he alone has the key of David. He is the sole sovereign. And what does that mean for us as a church? It means let hell rant and rave and throw dust in there all they want. It's simply an empty threat. The church is untouchable. And as he permits it, And it's this person that tells this church in verse 8 then, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You know the first verse that comes to mind when I read this is Hebrews 4, 13, which says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There's nothing we can hide. There's nothing hidden. Even things that are done in secret, we know that the Lord's going to reveal them. Everything's going to come out at the judgment when we stand before Christ. So we can be sure that when the Lord says that He knows our deeds, it's much deeper than just the act itself. It includes our reasonings, our motives, our intentions. Just like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, who thought that they could make themselves appear just as spiritual and righteous and God-honoring as all the rest of the church by presenting their partial gift at the apostles' feet. No one else knew about it, but Christ did. And he disciplined, on the, disciplined them on the spot, didn't he? And he made an example out of them. As you go on to read in that account of Acts chapter 5, it says this. That great fear came over the whole church. Does it cause us to maybe examine our own selves a little bit? The fact that he says that I know your deeds. And I'm not speaking, yes, that applies to us individually, but collectively as a church. Christ says, I know your deeds. When we hear the Lord say that, does it cause us to examine and evaluate our own thoughts, our actions, our intentions, our motives for everything we do? Because he's speaking to us as a church. 
Does it even get our attention when the Lord says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches? Christ knows our works. And the statement leaves no room for any of us to look around at other sister churches of like precious faith or, or brothers and sisters in Christ and to pick at them. Because the Lord says, I know your deeds. It's very personal. And as you look at the examples of the churches in, this, in these two chapters, chapter 2 and chapter 3, you'll see he points out sin and names sin of individuals in the churches. He's aware of all of it. For the church at Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis and Laodicea, it wasn't a good thing that he knew their deeds. But for Philadelphia, I believe it was a good thing. Look at verse 8 again. Notice what it says in verse 8. He says, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have followed my word and have not denied my name. I'm reading out of the, an updated American standard. But let me read it out of the ESV as I have it in my notes. It says, as I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Several commentators that I have read, I believe they're, they're right and correct in what they're saying, have stated that that statement the Lord makes, Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut, is a parenthetical statement. In other words, it's interrupting the, the thought of what was being said. So for the moment, what I want to do, I'm not going to leave it, but I want to just set it aside and look at is said in the rest of the verse. So if you set that section aside, it says this, I know your works, that you have but little power, and I might say, which literally reads, for little thou hast a strength. That word strength or power is the word dunaman. It's a power that's not natural to human beings. It's a power that is derived from our union to Christ. So we, he says to them that you have little power. Then it says, and yet you have kept my word, which again literally reads, and hast kept my word. Another thing I want to point out in that verse is the word and there which is the conjunction in that phrase. And it says, and kept, and has kept, is what is called, and I'm not an English student at all, but it's, it's called a coordinating copulative conjunction. And so it changes the way we understand what's being said in that, in that verse. If the, word were, if the word and were just an ordinary conjunction, it would read something like this. This is the best way I know how to show you the difference between the two. I know your works, 
that you have little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. What it does, it makes it sound as if the Lord's just simply making a list or acknowledging a list of the things that they've done. He is doing that, but he's saying something more. And this coordinating, copulative conjunction changes the way it actually is to be read. So if you have an ESV, an NIV, or NRSV, that's a good translation because it picks up on what this, this uh, conjunction is really relating. This is what it, how it's put in those translations. And they have added a couple words in there, but that's to help us understand the verse. He says, I know your works, that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Do you see how it changes the thought? It's not just a list. In other, in other words, he's saying, I know your works, that you have just little power, and yet, those two words, and yet, or yet you, rather, are the two words that they've added, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. And I agree with commentators that say the tense of that verb in, in those sentences, in that sentence, rather, have kept my word and have not denied my name, implies that this church has probably been tested by persecution in these areas, and they've successfully passed the test. In keeping his word and not denying a name, even in the face of persecution. These are the works that Christ is acknowledging that he knows. And then he adds that they accomplish these things with little power or little strength. You know, what an amazing view of God's graciousness. I don't know if you've seen this, see this or not when you read this passage. And I say that because the little power that they had was a gift of grace to begin with. That's God's grace. It's not something. That power is not innately in us as human beings. It's something God grants us. The persecution was ordained and permitted by Christ, but yet he's the one that enabled them by grace to keep his word and not deny his name. And then the Lord publicly acknowledges their works, indicating that he approves of what they're doing. And when you think about it, even their will, the want to, to keep his word and not to deny his name was accomplished solely by grace. But even at that, the Lord still designates these things as their works. And we go on to find out in verse 11 that he told them that if they keep firm what they have until the end, they'll receive a crown in glory. But there's not just a promise of a future crown here for their faithfulness in this passage. I believe that there's a promise of eminent blessing. 
Even though there isn't anything in this passage specifically stating that there is, I believe that there's an eminent blessing for this church because they have faithfully kept his word and not denied his name. It's not of the same nature as a crown. I believe that the Lord Jesus rewards this church for faithfully keeping his word and not denying his name by opening a door for them which no one can shut. Now I'm bringing in that parenthetical statement. I believe that is the reward. Christ says, Behold, look, I have opened a door for you which no one can shut. What a tremendous promise. Which I believe to mean that the Lord has, who has already stated in verse 7 that he possesses the key of David, has in fact already opened a door for effectual, fruitful labor for this church. And as they continue to keep his word and not deny his name, even in the face of persecution, he's promising to make his gospel bear fruit as they faithfully witness. What a promise! Let's look at a few passages that I believe will offer some proof to substantiate that this open door does represent what I'm telling you. The first passage is 1 Corinthians 16, 9 and 8, or 8 and 9 rather. But I, but I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effectual work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2. Verses 12 and 13. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Colossians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. I think I'm going to pass over a couple of pages of notes here. It might make this too long. And I don't want to do that. So what we see here is a promise of blessing for their obedience and faithful witness. And that promise is a promise of fruitful labor. As they go and take the gospel to the world, Christ is promising to bless it and cause it to bear fruit for them. It's a promise to cause this word to bear fruit, which in this life, and also in the one to come has great reward for the church, as it will for every church that follows their example. The thing that strikes me about what the Lord has said about this church is that even though their strength is little, he blesses them by opening this door for them. 
This immediately raises the question in my mind. If the Lord is blessing this church, as they have faithfully kept his word and not denied his name, with only a little strength, where does that leave us as churches? I'm speaking about Sovereign Grace and Thornville and all the rest of the churches. Where does that leave us? If this church only had little strength, and yet they were able to keep God's word in such a way to, that Christ blesses them and not deny his name, what does that say to us? And by saying that, I'm not saying that either here, you people, or Sovereign Grace or any other church is somehow living in abject sin or disobedience to Christ. Nor am I saying that there is absolutely zero blessing going on in the church. I'm not implying either. All I'm pointing to is that Christ blessed this church, and it, actually it's a commendation for keeping his word and not denying his name. Even at Sovereign Grace, we're at least seeing some young Christian families attending. They haven't united yet, but at least they're attending. And I'm hopeful and praying that the Lord may lead them to unite with the church, if it's his will. But it also means that if they're attending with us, that some other church has suffered attrition because they've left another church to come to our church. And that is not quite the same as this promised blessing that the Lord is promising to give this church. And as I've already called your attention to verse 13, the Lord wants us to pay attention to what he is saying to this church. And what the Lord is revealing is that this open door has been given to Philadelphia because they have persevered in both keeping his word and not denying his name. And I might also add this about what's going on at Sovereign Grace. I don't know about here. I'm sure it's the same. The Lord has opened up opportunities for witness at Sovereign Grace, and those opportunities are being taken advantage of. But even at that, I still can't say that I'm seeing the lost being saved, particularly in the community where the Lord has placed us as a church. So to date, the witnessing that has been taken place has yet to bear fruit. But yet again, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that it will bear fruit. But to date, it has not. But even in the light of this evidence, that the fact that the Lord is in some way blessing the church, I still believe that sovereign grace, and I believe that all our churches need to examine ourselves in light of what the Lord is saying to this church at Philadelphia and of this promise that he's made to the church. I believe that we need to ask ourselves, as a church, some probing questions. And as I said, because 
even though this church had little strength, in spite of that little strength, they still managed to keep his word and not deny his name. And as I said, also said, it seems that this blessing of an open door is based on those works. Keeping his word and not denying his name. And then he says in verse 13, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He wants us to pay attention. So one of the questions I believe that we should ask ourselves is how well really are we keeping the word of Christ? And I know when you pose a question like that to believers today, it's very offensive. It's a good way to get stoned. Because the response usually is, how dare you ask me a question like that? Who do you think you are? You have no right to ask me a question like that. But I honestly believe, I'm being honest. I honestly believe that not only us as individuals, because we are members of Christ's body, but the church as a whole, we need to ask ourselves that question. Why? Because as I said, it seems that the one thing that, that Christ takes into account, these are the things that he takes into account, rather, by blessing this church with this open door. I think the next question should be, whose standard? And what standard are we going to use to measure our obedience? Well, there's no question that we've got to use God's word. We can't just look at our own lives and evaluate ourselves in our own eyes. It has to be in the light of God's word. And in saying what I've said, I in no way believe, I mean absolutely in no way believe that the Church of Philadelphia achieved perfection. They are cut out of the same cloth that we are. They were human beings. But even though they were just plain human beings and had not reached perfection, the Lord Jesus himself commends them for achieving what they accomplished. And they please him. And his blessing likewise seems, as I said, to be based on their good conduct. Again, so what does that say to us as churches? I think that every one of our churches in the association would be tremendously encouraged if we were to find out, even joyful, if we were to find out that the Lord had endowed us with this gift. So when we go out there and we talk to somebody that's lost, whether it's a relative or a friend or just somebody on the street, that the gospel would lay hold of them, the Holy Spirit would convict them. It'd be tremendously encouraging. And we'd see souls saved. It wouldn't have to be to the extent that we see at Pentecost, where he had 3,000 souls at one time come to, to Christ. For myself, speaking for myself, I'd be encouraged if the Lord just saved one family every three months. Through our witness, 
That'd be four families a year. I'd be overjoyed. So yes, I believe it is a valid question that we need to ask ourselves. How well are we keeping his word and doing what he said? You know, when things are going smooth in the church, we have a tendency to assume that we're doing okay. And they may be. But then again, they may not be. I think I... Hang on a second here. Let me find my place again. The first passage I want to look at to help us maybe look at this whole idea of our obedience to Christ and consider it is 1 Corinthians 7, verse 35. This is a tough passage for me. It's not the entire verse. It's just part of the verse. What's going on in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is Paul's dealing with unmarried or spouses that may not be Christians. He's also dealing with singles in the immediate context before this verse with singles who have not yet married. And so he's addressing that. And in verse 35 it says this. He says, I'm saying this for your good. And when he mentions that, he's talking about their spiritual good. Their spiritual good. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way. And what does he say that right way is? In the ESV it reads, in undivided devotion to the Lord. Oh, I take that back. That's in the NIV, not the ESV. The ESV reads, undistracted devotion to the Lord. Let's look at this word devotion a little bit. Vincent says that the best English word that conveys the sense of this Greek word is assiduous. It's not a word that I use every day. But here's how the dictionary defines it. Showing great care, attention, and effort, or making a careful attention or uh, persistent application. The Jameson Fawcett Brown Commentary uses three passages as examples to help us understand this word. The first one is found in Luke 10, verse 39. It has to do with Mary. And it says, And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was teaching. The point being, Jesus had Mary's focused attention. The next passage, Luke 2, 37, which speaks of Anna. And says that she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. 
In 1 Timothy 5, 5, Paul's speaking of widows, and he says, She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. That's what's pictured in this. So devotion, if that's what's in your translation, is a good word. And the ESV does render that this way. It says, undistracted devotion. Either translation, whether it's undistracted or undivided devotion, is a good translation. There's no question that Paul's setting before this church the ideal. But yet, he sees this attainable for those who are single. And he actually is teaching them to apply it in their life. To achieve this undistracted devotion to Christ. And he tells them, if you're able, don't even get married. And as we already pointed out in that passage, he says, well, I'm saying, I'm saying for your own good. For their spiritual good. That takes priority in their life. He says, but that you may live in a right way. So he sees this as something that is attainable for those who are unmarried. And for those who are married, it becomes more difficult, if not nigh unto impossible to achieve. Why? Simply because we have other duties, other responsibilities. We can't give as somebody that is single, our undivided, undivided attention to Christ. So Christ, or so Paul is absolutely setting the ideal before this church, but he sees it as being able to be reached. I believe that all of us understand that Paul's in no way advocating that we should neglect our spouses or our families, or our parents, or our jobs, or anything of that nature. It's clear, from, it's clear that he is advocating that Christ is to receive the greater portion of our time, and our attention, and our effort. He's to have the preeminence in our life. As we see even in verse 29 of that same passage, in verse 29 of chapter 7, he says this, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with this world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. What is he seeking to establish in the church? He's seeking to establish the preeminence of Jesus Christ. The preeminence. In the lives of his people. Just as the Lord has stated, that was an absolute necessity in Luke 14, 26, which again I remind you of, we read it last week. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, and mother, wife, children, brothers, 
and sisters. And yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Christ is telling them, I must have the preeminence in your life. And that's what exactly Paul's trying to establish in the church. Undistracted devotion to Christ. He has to have the preeminence. That's our obedience to Christ. This verse in 1 Corinthians 7.35 just simply beats me up because I see myself falling short so, so many times. So yes, individually and collectively as the body of Christ, I do think that we need to ask ourselves, how well are we really doing in obeying God's word? You know, how many times do we come down to making decisions or something and we rationalize and sometimes I think, at least I find myself doing this, maybe you don't do this, but we rationalize and think to ourselves that we don't have to be that precise in following God's word or following what he says. Or how many times do we think to ourselves, the Lord doesn't really expect us to be that detailed in obeying what he asks. Really? Can we verify that from Scripture? You see, that's what I mean. I think we need to ask ourselves, how well are we really obeying the Word of Christ? We're all going to fail. Every one of us. But as we've seen, even though we may fail, we are still to strive for that. What Paul's setting forth, that undistracted devotion to Christ, that we are to strive for with every ounce of strength and ability that we have. You remember what we said last week from last week's message? We've forgotten that the, that the scriptures describe us as abject slaves of God and Christ who have no autonomy. We're a slave. We have no autonomy. It's revealed in Luke 14, 26. And whose sole purpose in life is to fulfill every request he makes. That's what Christ expects of us. And it has to be because in this passage, Christ is addressing the church. Yes, it affects us individually, as I said before, but Christ is addressing the church. So when it comes to this obeying God's word or not denying his name, which I'm not going to get to in this message because I'm running out of time, it has to be Everybody, every member of the church collectively has to be united in doing this. Why do I say that? Do you remember the example in the Old Testament of Achan? Remember the account of Achan? 
Israel had just defeated Jericho. The walls come down, and God had given them a tremendous victory. The next city that they were going to go into battle against was Ai, just a small little city. So Joshua sent spies up there to spy out the city. The spies returned, and they said, Don't send all the men up to labor. It's just a small city. So don't send up all the men. So Joshua only sent up 3,000 men, if memory serves me right. 3,000 men. And they went up there, and they were defeated. Israel turned their back and ran for the enemies. Some of them were killed. They come back to the camp with their tail between their legs. And Joshua falls before the Ark of the Covenant on his face before God. He says, Lord, what am I going to do? Why did you even bring us into this land? Just to kill us? All our enemies are going to hear about this. And they're going to surround us and destroy us. And God says to Joshua, get up. Israel has sinned. It was just Achan. He took some of the things that were dedicated to destruction and he hid them in his tent. Nobody knew about it, but God did. And so all Israel became dedicated to destruction. They couldn't stand before their enemies because, as God says, Israel has has sinned. Achan was a member of the children of Israel. And God looked at it as a whole nation sinning. The same is true of the church. And that's my point. If we're going to actually achieve this and actually attain this promise that Christ is promising this church, all of us have to, as a church have to be united with one mind and heart to pursue with all our strength and ability and all our effort obedience to God's word. and not to deny his name. I think this is an absolutely tremendous promise. Christ says, Behold, I have set before you an open door. With our hearts united in that way, what would happen if all of us come to God in prayer consistently, persistently, every week, with even fasting perhaps, And petition God to open this door for us. What would happen? I think the Lord would honor it. I'm not trying to discourage you or to beat up on you in any way. I'm just pointing out the fact this is such a blessing. And it should be encouraging to us. Our Lord has promised to open a door for us as a church. And as I said before, he says of this church, you only have a little strength. Shouldn't we at least question our own obedience and why we're not seeing this blessing? Remember what Christ says in verse 13? Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's for our instruction. 
I think the Lord will bless us. How to accomplish this? Other than, you know, to get everybody united as one man and to uh, see this achieved in the church. I'm not saying it's impossible. We may need to pray for revival in the church. That the Lord will reveal to us the measure of his spirit that we've never seen before. But this is a tremendous promise, dear people. As I said, how many of us wouldn't even be overjoyed to see just four families a year converted out of the community and united with, with the church? Wouldn't that be an encouragement? Wouldn't it be encouraging to go out and actually begin to witness to people and to see the Spirit of God work in their lives? Not just to hear you and go their own way and you never see them again? I think it's something we need to pay attention to. It's a tremendous promise. George, would you mind closing us in a word of prayer, please? Thank you, brother. Our closing hymn for today is taken from the hymnal 529 in the brown hymnal. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, my fault. Let me start over. This is, this is why it's important for you folks to sing loud so you can't hear me mess you up, okay? <clears throat> in name I love to hear, I love to hear. 
sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. It tells me of a Savior's love who died to set me free. It tells me of His precious blood, the sinner's perfect plea. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because He first loved me. It tells me what my Father hath in store for every day. And though I tread a darksome path, He's sunshine all the way. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. It tells me of one throbbing heart can feel life deepest woe. Who in each sorrow bears a part that none can bear below. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. Because he first loved me. Thank you. As the week goes on, I pray God's faithfulness unto you. He guides your steps and your thoughts, and that we would once again be rejoined on the following Sunday. Thank you. We are dismissed.